0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .net. I'm Sean Claybow and with me today is Caleb Wells with the Typhon Group. I'm to say hi, Caleb.
1: Hey y'all, how are y'all doing?
0: All right. And our guest today is Colby Tresness. He's with Microsoft. He's a project manager on Azure Functions. Is that right, Colby?
2: Yeah, so I'm a, uh, well, it's actually kind of complicated. My, my, my title is program manager. I would consider myself more of a product manager, but I do end up doing some project management. So it's it's a, let's just call me a generic PM. You can manage <laughs> all the okay. way around. Yeah, lots of different stuff. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us a little
1: bit about Azure Functions for people who who aren't familiar with them?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Azure Functions is a product that Microsoft provides, and, and I, I think it's actually two different things that I want to I want to go through. The first is a programming model. So it's a way of writing code that is uh, what we refer to as functions as a service. So the idea is you write kind of a a small bit of code, uh, one function that has some trigger and maybe some some connections to other services. We call those bindings. I can get into that a little later. The core idea is you've got this little bit of code that can react to events. So uh, that's one piece of functions. It's this functions as a service program model. It's that you're writing this small bit of code reacting to events. Now, the other piece is this serverless scale. So um, serverless is kind of a a buzzword that's being thrown around a lot lately, but the the really core definition is just whatever application load your functions, in this case, are seeing, our infrastructure will kind of scale dynamically to handle that load. So what that means is that you don't have to worry about provisioning new servers. You don't have to worry about really anything with your application other than the actual business logic of the code that you're writing. So that's, I think, a pretty decent introduction. Um, the, The two pieces are this functions as a service, and this serverless scale. You can have one without the other, for instance. Uh, we do have actually, in Azure Functions, there are other ways of running your functions, so you don't actually have to have the serverless scale, but we find that most people like that behavior. So
1: what would be the closest comparable structure to
2: functions as a service, right? Because you have IaaS, and you have PaaS, mm-hmm. you have SaaS. So the way I think about it is this kind of transition of how people have been developing applications over the course of time. I mean, before the cloud, of course, everything was on-prem. With the advent of the cloud, the initial promise was, oh, you won't have to worry about really anything. All the infrastructure will be handled for you. Uh, But what we got was actually the physical infrastructure turned into logical infrastructure. And there were still a lot of things that you you as the developer had to worry about. Um, Then, of course, came around PaaS, uh, which is, uh, you know, platform as a service where you, you, the developer, don't have to worry about a lot of the underlying infrastructure things. We have a, we have a service in Azure um, App Service that handles a lot of these things really well for you. A good example of the benefit of this is the, the Spectre and Meltdown vulnerability from a while ago. The, the Azure App Service at the time automatically updated, I think it was somewhere between 600,000 and a million virtual machines without any of their customers knowing nice. uh, that we had patched that vulnerability for you. So things like security updates, improvements to the actual hardware, things like that are things that we abstract for you with platform as a service. But with platform as a service, you still have to manage your scale. So I would put serverless and kind of functions as a service as one step more abstraction away from platform as a service. It's kind of one more step in the direction of not worrying about things. Ultimately, there's this trade-off between productivity and control. And functions are kind of the tip of productivity while you're still writing code. There are other services like software as a service and um, things like Logic Apps, things like uh, Microsoft Flow, other other services that kind of let you do sort of similar things with, without actually writing code. But while you're still writing code, I think this is the very tip of focusing on what your application actually needs to do and not about the infrastructure that it's running on. Okay.
0: So my question is is more about what what's the use case for Azure Functions? You know, when would I want to write something in Azure Functions versus just putting an API in my existing application?
2: I typically answer this in one of two ways. I think that functions are really good for Greenfield applications. So anything that's new, I think it's really easy to get started with functions. It's It's very easy to figure out whether this is the solution for you, if that makes sense, because it's just so easy to get started because there 's not a lot of overhead, so if you're if you 're building a new application I think that 's a really good a really good place to start and then um, you know fail fast and see if if you need something that has a little more more control a little more you know knobs things that you can you can uh, mess with The other thing I would say is that kind of extending existing applications is really is really pretty pretty good with functions because you don 't actually have to touch any of the existing applications so so I like to think. Take, for example, the web API workload, which is something that we see a lot on functions. If you're building a new web API, you could start from scratch with, you know, whatever, whatever um, server, you know, ASP, ASP net application that you'd like, or you could just build the one function, the one kind of piece of logic you actually need, and then have this kind of suite of maybe microservices. Alternatively, if you have an existing web API that you don't want to touch, but maybe you need to update... Some additional route, maybe you need to add something like a, a new capability on your website that you want to be able to have an API for, uh, but maybe your maybe your application was built a while ago, and you don't want to go touch with your touch touch your legacy code. Functions is a really good way um, to do that while you know maintaining that existing infrastructure. When I would suggest people to use functions is uh when they're either building something new or doing something that is uh, an extension to an existing application. Of course, you can completely re-architect your existing solution with serverless, if you'd like, with functions as a service. But that is a pretty big undertaking. So it's not something that I would suggest unless you actually are like really bought in and decided that you need to rewrite it anyways. That kind of covers the the situations in which you would. I, I, that, that's not exactly the type of workloads. So maybe that would help a little bit as well. But we see a lot of people doing um, web workloads, like I said. But I, I would say that really the best fit for serverless and functions is anything that is based on events, anything that is, any type of scale that is variable at all. So things like uh, data processing, maybe you have some little bit of logic you need to do to transform data coming from source A to go to source B. Maybe you have, I don't know, various IoT devices that are sending messages up to the cloud and you need to do some sort of uh, analysis on that data. Anything that has events like that, um, variable load, that, that, that's when functions is really, really strong.
1: Okay. Okay. The company I work for, um, we're actually just starting the process of um, rebuilding our application from scratch. Mm-hmm. Software as a service for nursing schools, but it's currently massive. And mm-hmm. while we're going to consolidate code and try to, you know, write a lot of it in to be reusable using .NET Core and C Sharp, you know, I'm curious from a function standpoint, how would I go about, and we don't have to get into the nitty-gritty, but how would I go about writing Web API 2 using C Sharp and functions? How does that work locally in Visual
2: Studio or VS Code? How, is that, how do you go about that? Cool. So I think I'll answer for Web APIs in general. The basic idea is that you're going to want to actually figure out how your application will have to kind of break down into its, I guess, constituent components so the the thing about serverless is that you are kind of re-architecting your application slightly. You, you can't take the exact same paradigm, I guess, with um, your typical client server application and then immediately put it into serverless. The architecture you have to think about is much more based on where the events are flowing and kind of what the individual pieces actually need to do. So what I would say here is that, first of all, I w- I would, were I approaching a problem where I need to kind of take an existing web API and kind of rebuild it with a a new, new situation. I would figure out what the actual units of work that I'm trying to do, what the um, kind of, I guess, um, the, the, the core objects, the um, primaries, these core objects then would kind of be split out into individual function apps. So that's one thing I haven't explained yet. We have this nice level of abstraction called a function app, uh, Mm -hmm. which is the logical grouping around a set of functions these functions scale together. They're deployed together. They're managed together. So what would happen is, uh, I would say maybe I've got this one section of my um, one section of my new web API that I want to build. Maybe it's everything to deal with this one entity, like I don't know, everything everything to do with my I don't know mm-hmm. user API or something. Mm-hmm. I would maybe group all of these together since they're they're things that probably need to be called in a similar fashion. Maybe they chain. Maybe they do uh, any number of things. I would probably group these together. I would go into Visual Studio or VS Code, and then I would actually create a new function app. What that is is again this container for your functions. And then once I have that function app, uh, which is my logical grouping, I'll go ahead and create individual HTTP-based functions for each of these actual API endpoints that I want. Okay,
1: so so um, in that sense, same thing as Web API two in in a MVC app is you yeah, do, you're basically. breaking them up into GET, PUTs, POST, deletes, and Putting them together in similar to a controller, right? Things that, that that flow together. Okay.
2: Yeah, I think I think that I think that's a good way to describe it. You'll have to you'll have to tweak some of the config of each of the uh, each of the functions to actually specify which ones are get post, which ones are okay, whatever thing. But I guess a good segue into explaining the whole triggers bindings thing is really briefly. Every function must have one trigger. We need to know when to actually start that piece of code. Okay. So example of a trigger um, is HTTP. That's kind of the the simplest one that everyone gets started with, but there are also some other ones that make a lot of sense for the data processing scenarios I was talking about. Things like Azure Event Hubs, things like Azure Storage. If you drop something in Azure Storage, you can even do things like IoT Hub, um, things like that. So so we have a lot of different um, event triggers. And then there's this notion of an input binding and an output binding. So the, the idea here is that in addition to starting off your function, what the input binding will do is say, uh, if you need to go and fetch a resource from another part of Azure, uh, it'll go and um, do the negotiation for you, essentially. So instead of having to take that boilerplate code that you would call every time to use whatever SDK to actually go and grab that piece of information from table storage, we, we can go and actually populate populate your function with that information for you. Uh, and then the output binding is just wherever you want this data to go at the end of the function. So for an HTTP request, it would make sense to ha- give an HTTP response as your are um, right. up for that. Right. For triggers,
1: how exactly does that work? Are the, are the functions always on and always available? Because I understand so, you're only charged... For when the functions are being
2: used, right when there's when there's the resource
1: being
2: so right. um, when we're talking about the serverless functions, the reason I have to be careful with my language here is that we yeah. do, uh, as I as I briefly said, we do support we do support multiple different plans. So gotcha. if you're running functions in the consumption plan, which is the serverless option, that's where that pricing applies. Okay. Um, you can also run functions in kind of an always-on manner in the dedicated plan. The reason I wanted to do that introduction at the beginning of the difference between serverless and functions-as-a-service is right. that um, you can actually run the functions-as-a-service piece without serverless in this app service plan. Um, okay. so you're, you're It's basically running functions you think? as a service with platform-as-a-service, if that makes sense. So I, I know all the names are getting a little confusing here, but the, the core idea is there are two different main ways of running functions. One is serverless, One is not serverless. Let's now talk about the serverless one because I think that's much more interesting for this this context of things being on and off and scaling Right. So the serverless way of doing things, your functions are not running in general. Um, If you're not getting any usage, your functions are not running. This is how the economics of our service actually makes sense because otherwise we would just be having provisioned resources for everyone and they're only paying for what they're used. So we actually uh, dynamically allocate and deallocate the resources for customers. We have, of course, a portion of that actually already running. So we kind of have this pool of warm workers uh, is the way to think about it. And this pool of warm workers is then actually specialized to whatever application code is needed at the time. So let's say you're starting your application um, that hasn't run in, say, 24 hours. What'll happen under the hood, this is actually what, what is referred to as a cold start, just for context. Uh, what'll happen under the hood is we will go grab a, a warm instance of functions that is running and then specialize it towards your application code. If we see that we need to actually run functions on that that specific user's code, it will then go through the process of you know jitting, doing all of the process of getting everything warmed up. I won't go through all of the details there once everything is fully warm then your application will go ahead and run on that infrastructure that entire process takes about 2 seconds ish is the the rough amount of time it generally takes subsequent requests of course will be considerably faster so we keep your we keep your functions alive after you've executed them for about 20 minutes and mm-hmm. so any subsequent request will go to that instance and will have um, kind of the the benefit of already reaching something that has been turned on already. What that actually does is b- because these are actually scaled at the function app level, first request to any function will kind of warm up your infrastructure. And then you'll get a nice nice amount of requests that can go to that same instance without having to scale out the infrastructure further. As you may have guessed at this point, anytime we actually scale out to a new instance to have uh, more executions, you will see another cold start for that. New instance, but the the thing is that you you already have an instance running so we can divert some of the traffic to that running instance so it's it's not quite as drastic the the slowdown that people will see
0: yeah, good because my question was going to be was is that cold start penalty? is that per function or per function group or anything like that? So we actually
2: do this slightly differently than some of our competitors um, the main the main competitor that uh, we we talk about a lot is uh, AWS lambda. Uh, right. and they have a very different model than we do in the sense that every every function invocation will have a cold start um, for them because they're they're spinning up um, new instances for every single function invocation, uh, every call, every trigger. Okay, yeah. which is why it's a, a much bigger deal. Of course, they they started up for every invocation, but of course, once they see invocations coming in, they mm-hmm. start to really rapidly spin up, and um, they, you really you really do only see it for that first batch of executions for Lambda. For us, it's slightly different. We do process many many invocations on the same instance, but we have to warm up that individual instance. So you'll see fewer cold starts for us. Um, ours are slightly longer, um, just because of how the infrastructure works. But it is something that you'll see less frequently
1: for. So for-
2: an example
1: in production for software as a service. If we're if we're using serverless functions a good deal, maybe say for reporting, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's it's its own, you know, concept, right? And and it can be segmented off. We could do something on our end that would trigger a function to spin up, say, mm-hmm. you know, 730, because we know a lot of our clients are gonna be getting in eight, eight thirty. And then that way it would already have been started. Yeah, no one outside of us would get that two-second penalty, so to speak. I
2: mean, two seconds isn't long, but, you know, in context. Yeah. In context, sometimes it is. If you're doing a, if you're doing a reactive website, you, you don't want something right. to wait two seconds.
0: So something I was thinking about is, yeah, just making some sort of a, a dummy function that, okay, I know I'm going to be doing a bunch of function calls here in a second or 10 seconds or whatever. I might want to make one function just to get things warmed up. So that once they have to call the real functions, those
2: are already warmed up yeah honestly that's what we we see a lot of people doing that we it's it's a pretty pretty standard practice that being said the, the the thing about cold start um is that it's kind of more of a perception issue than an issue that we actually see a ton of customers having once you have an application with any load at all um this issue mostly goes away because you're really you're you're on like you, you'll usually get at least one request for 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 a lot of applications i won't I won't generalize but for for a lot of applications you get at least one request every 20 minutes anyways. So unless it's a very low traffic application like a demo application or something, then you'll you'll have a pretty responsive application. So would you be um,
0: charged for the 20 minutes or just the time that the function took?
2: Great question. Just the time your function took. Okay. So you you are not paying for any of us. That's that that 20 minutes is actually something that we could we could tweak. We don't we don't promise that at all. That's just the buffer in our system that we find is a good number for when when someone if you haven't executed a function in about twenty minutes, it seems to be pretty unlikely that you will come back for any recognizable period of time. Smaller than that, we find that people do take quick breaks and you know maybe execute every five minutes or something like that. So that's why we have that that kind of built-in timeout. The one other thing I did want to mention here is that I would be I'd be remiss if I didn't um, didn't talk a little bit here about the Azure Functions Premium plan, which is something that we actually have in preview. Premium plan is. Uh, so I, I've talked a lot about these various plans and I recognize that it's probably a little confusing, but uh, if, if I have one main message, it's there is the consumption mode, which is the fully serverless, um, pay for only what you use, pay zero when you don't use it. There's the dedicated plan, which is my functions are always available. I'm paying for the infrastructure all of the time. And then the premium plan is kind of what we view as the best of both worlds. So the premium plan is uh, you're, you're getting dedicated hardware, as in we reserve one instance for you all the time. So what that means, because you are you always have one instance available, you will always have a warm instance to go to. So you will never have a cold start, which is really powerful. It is slightly more expensive. It's not called the premium plan for no reason, but you also get with the premium plan some, uh, some more advanced networking features that I know a lot of the enterprise customers are looking for, like point-to-site VPN, kind of just the triggering your function from a VNet is something that we're working on a lot of these kind of isolated network features that people want um, for kind of more enterprise scenarios. So I, I, would, I would just say that if you are someone who is worried about cold start and you are someone who is working at a larger company who, um, or even a smaller company that's willing to willing to put forward a little more money towards the problem as opposed to dealing with it, the premium plan is a really good option. You can configure the number of instances that you'd like to stay warm. So there's a minimum of one, but you can keep warm up to a maximum of I think twenty, and then maybe ten. I'm not one hundred percent sure, but you can you can then kind of uh, have a have a really good system that's running on actually better hardware even. So the the requests and the throughput themselves, the requests themselves and the throughput therein is is actually quite a bit uh, better for the premium plan as well. So that's my little spiel on premium. It's it's uh it's in public preview right now. We're actively working on developing. Um, so it's something that we're excited about the future of.
1: Cool. Very cool. Another thing that, that that comes to mind with functions and really with cloud in general, right, is the security of those functions mm-hmm. and who has access to them and who doesn't, right? Yeah. Uh, we're working through identity server right now and how we're going to Set up our infrastructure right, and and you have the idea of protected resources and keys. So you
2: know you're limited to who
1: you can talk to. How does that work with
2: functions? Yeah, so there, there are a couple different features we have here. I think the main one is just it's very easy. We have keys for each function, so it's very okay. easy to lock any function down behind that that key. Okay. The other thing I want to I want to talk about is this thing, the, this feature we have that's also something that's available in App Service called Easy All. I like it quite a bit. It, it, it's rather than locking specific functions down behind keys. Uh, it's kind of a turnkey auth solution that lets you just basically click a button and say, I would like social auth for my entire application. Basically, you say, yeah, you you, you click a button in the Azure portal and it says, turn on, um, the official name is not easy auth. I think it's um, managed identity. It's, 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 uh, I think in app service, is app service identity and it might be function app identity. I'm not 100% sure. But the, the core idea is you you turn this feature on and what it does is it puts a basically a facade in front of your entire application Uh, says you have to be logged in with one of these three services. I think it's right now Facebook, Twitter, Google off. And then once you're logged in, you'll be able to access that web page. That's a really nice feature that a lot of people get a lot of success around. The other thing I want to talk about, um, I misspoke and mentioned it earlier, but uh, managed identity is another thing that's really, really cool. Managed identity is a way that you can actually set up the authentication between your function app and other Azure services. So the idea here is that... um, A lot of the way users will do um, calls to other authenticated services is just by providing keys and um, API keys in the actual application settings of your function app. Uh, Those are, of course, encrypted at rest and fully secure in and of themselves. But, of course, it's not necessarily the best um, situation. So a lot of people will want to have these in, in Key Vault, for instance. Azure Key Vault is a solution that people will use quite a bit for that. The idea of a managed identity, though, is that rather than actually having this secret that you have to share between your application to get your, say, function app to communicate with your Cosmos DB, the, the managed identity, once you've configured that, is you're, uh, you're given kind of a, 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 an identity for your function app itself. So that, that function app now can, um, by assigning this identity to the function app and giving it permissions on the Cosmos DB, you don't have to actually worry about managing those secrets yourself. It's kind of a fully managed experience where you um, can say just the one time this is allowed to talk to this, essentially, and we behind the scenes will kind of manage that connection for you. So, so yeah, I, I think that was just a brief overview into a lot of the different authentication features we have. The the bottom line is it's it's not too hard to actually put some thought into this and and secure your applications when you're building the functions.
1: Okay, good dinner. The next thing I'm curious about is so obviously. Azure Functions, well I'm assuming Azure Functions supports .NET Framework and .NET Core, C so on and so forth. What version of .NET Core does it currently support? And does it support other programming languages outside of the .NET uh, you know ecosystem?
2: Yeah, absolutely. This is actually unfortunately a little complicated. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but the, the the core idea is Azure Functions supports Right now, two major versions in production. Okay. We have a version one and a version two. Version one is where we currently have support for .NET full framework. Uh, and version two is uh, .NET Core. This is, of course, because version two runs cross-platform locally and has a lot of... Um, it, it was a fairly fairly large re-architecture. So using .NET Core has allowed us to do a lot of a lot of additional things that we uh, do, like... like um, New languages that we've enabled, so I can I can talk about that in a second as well. Okay, but the, the core idea is V1 is .NET full framework. It is it, it will be supported for quite a while. Version two is .NET core as well. We do we do at some point plan on supporting .NET full framework in the later versions of functions, but as of right now, that's the split. It's it's V1 is framework, V2 is core. So with that, um, right now we support in V2. Um, that's obviously where all of the active development is going. And v2 we support uh, .NET Core 2. We're actually uh, when .NET Core 3 goes GA, um, coming uh, in a couple months here, we are going to support .NET Core 3 shortly thereafter. We don't have an official date for that yet, but uh, it we we have to wait until they have GA, of course, until we we take those changes into our our host and then make make that fully available. Yeah. So 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 that's kind of the .NET picture. Other than that, we have uh, some other languages that you can run in functions. Uh, Node, so JavaScript, TypeScript, um, those will all, those are both available in V1 and V2. Of course, uh, on on V1, the Node experience was actually pegged at Node six, and in uh, V2, you can use Node eight and Node ten, and kind of the other languages going forward. It's actually kind of interesting. We in V1 we were using a, a library called Edge JS that transpiled the JavaScript code to .dot net, and oh. all kind of running in the same process, which was a, a very interesting. Hack that we that we had going obviously it wasn't sustainable which is why we were pegged at that major version the library wasn't maintained it was it had a whole host of issues associated with it this is one of the one, one of the reasons that we did our re-architecture to v2 was to enable this kind of out-of-process language model so we use a library called grpc to communicate between our host which is written in.net and all of these different language workers which are written in whatever language that the actual code is running in Um, So that's how we're able to support the other languages we support, which are um, Node, we support Java as well. We have um, in preview right now, we have Python and PowerShell. Yeah, and that's the list right now. There are, you know, always, always talk of enabling more. And because our our model is actually fairly extensible, we've we've seen um, a lot of people in the community pick up and build build very small proofs of concept of, um, other languages as well. Like I've seen a, I've seen a go worker floating around. I've seen a rust worker floating around. There's a pretty big difference between someone building it and getting it to work and us supporting it in production though. So I can't make any promises of course on roadmap or what we'll actually support in production anytime soon, but that's a little bit into our architecture and how that works and how we manage to support many languages.
1: So, um, you would choose version one if you're you want to use the .NET framework. Version two if you want to use core, mm-hmm. but regardless of which one you use, the the outside applications, spas uh, or, or other APIs they're talking to it, it doesn't
2: matter, right? That in and, and yes. that case it's uh, there's no difference between the two. Yeah, there shouldn't be any difference from the actual outside okay. uh, application talking to it. It's just it's just what your code is looking, you know, what 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 the code itself looks like, right. what the behavior of the the host under the cover is. There are some performance optimizations and things as well in, in version two. As you can imagine, any major version update of a product will have many different improvements. And, and actually, when we when we do, uh, it's interesting when we do when we do release support for .NET three, we'll have to update our major version to, to three as well because. Okay. You know, the the code, the .NET Core 3 will change a lot, but it doesn't actually impact. And uh, We're hoping to not have any breaking changes for functions 2 to functions 3. I, it, 1 to 2 was a really big jump. Hopefully, every subsequent release will be a lot smoother, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. just because we've ironed out a lot of the, I guess, architecture issues we had with our first product.
1: So um, for for these other languages, Java and Node, my understanding, and I've tinkered with them some, is that there are uh, extensions for a number of Azure pieces in VS Code. For someone who's writing Node, how would that work? What's what's the
2: flow there? Yeah, we, so so it's 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 great that you ask. I, I would say our recommended development tool for anyone using .NET is Visual Studio, um, right. and anyone using any other language is VS Code. And of course, if you if you like VS Code and you're a .NET user, you can also do that. But yeah, the VS Code flow is fairly simple. There's the extension library built right into VS Code. You go search for the Azure Functions extension, download it. takes I don't know 15 seconds or so. Once you've downloaded that, it'll have to you know reload the application, and then what 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 it'll do is then you'll get this uh, nice little Azure A on the left pane of VS Code, and it it, it will give you um, in that extension a really nice tooling on how to get started, kind of very similar to what we get in VS. So it'll it'll give you a the option to create a new function app Um, within that function app that you've provisioned, it will um, create new functions. When you're creating the function app, it'll of course ask you what language you'd like to write the functions in. So it kind of knows what templates to use. And it kind of, it tells you all this information about what's in preview, what's not in preview, all, all that good, all that good stuff. Uh, You can have, you know, templates for all of the different triggers we support. And then from there, the, the really cool part about Azure functions actually that I, I, probably should have already mentioned is that when you're running in VS or running in VS code, it's actually running the same exact host the same exact runtime that it's running up in Azure is what's running locally on your machine. So um, there you're, you're not going to have any like, Oh, it works on my machine, but not in production bugs, because at least for the functions runtime part, it's the exact same bits that are running. The only place where you'd get into issues is like native dependencies. I know this is an issue in Python particular. People have depend a lot of dependencies that are built specifically based on whatever uh, machine they're running on, whatever OS image. And so so with that, we have um, we have things like uh, remote builds that will kind of help help with that. The core idea here is that the VS Code experience and the VS experience really try to mimic the Azure experience very closely. And then, um, of course, we give you the ability to then push that code right up to Azure.
0: That's awesome. So when you're testing that, and things are running locally, that means you're not paying for anything. So really all the testing yeah. calls, that's totally free.
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Testing is a great point. And we make it really easy with these tools. I mean, it's a real, it's a real asset that we, uh, you know, it's Microsoft. So we have Visual Studio and VS Code. It's really nice to just be able to run a breakpoint and have that code actually running. And the, the cool part is that if you're running locally, you can have your connection strings hooked up to whatever actual like Azure resources you want. So I can test on my local machine, like actually dropping a, blob in Azure blob storage, having that test my functions code and then put it wherever else it needs to go. I can have that entire thing running locally on my machine um, exactly as it would in production, except maybe with different connection strings or different machines. And you're right, it's completely free if it's on your machine.
1: For functions, if I write, um, I'm using extensions, spun up a function app, I'm running it locally. If I were writing those functions, API calls, would it be similar to doing Web API 2? Would I be able to use any of your framework core, right? The, kind of the same flow that I would get
2: in a standalone application? Yeah, so I think what I'm getting out of the question is um, how can I kind of use functions to connect to a database? Does that sound reasonable?
1: Yeah, yeah right. You, you've got several ORMs, mappers, any framework, right, is a really
2: common one. How would you approach that in a function? Two different ways. One, we do have these bindings. Um, So if you want to connect to, say, a SQL server or something, um, we do have things out of the box that will let you very easily hook up to whatever database you're using, whether it's um, mostly a couple of the Azure services uh, like Cosmos DB. And then the second way I would say is that we really because it's just code and we're running whatever code you have, if you grab the SDK or binary or whatever library you want to actually connect with whatever resource you need, so long as you're properly authenticated with that resource via either the application settings or whatever other way you need to authenticate, whether it's something in Key Vault or managed identity like I'm talking about, or like I was talking about earlier, any of these ways you can actually just, you know, refer to other resources the way you would with any other application. The one interesting thing to note here, though, is that you'll want to you'll manage your uh, connections pretty carefully because of the whole distributed nature of Azure Functions. The basic way to describe this is the host persists statically declared objects between invocations of functions, okay. whereas if you are instantiating an object within one invocation, um, that will happen thousands and thousands of times, right? So you mm-hmm. can very quickly reach like port exhaustion on the machines that you're, you're actually running on. So okay. that's just kind of one gotcha that a lot of people don't think about is that when you're when you're dealing with things like connecting to a SQL database or connecting to, um, I don't know, it, even just like I was saying, instantiating um, HTTP requests, you're going to want to use a, like a factory pattern kind of thing or like, like I was saying, a static clients rather than actually newing up a new client every single invocation. So there's no connection pooling going on there? Not out of the box. Within a single invocation, there's not. We'll, we'll, I, I think we'll do connection pooling for you if you declare things properly, I guess, outside of the actual scope of one invocation. But like we don't do anything intelligent to figure out within an invocation, um, we actually need to, because something's being declared every single time in an invocation, we don't pull that out automatically for you, for instance. So that's just a, that's just a gotcha I thought would... Okay. Um, yeah, that's yeah, good to help. Yeah. Worth mentioning.
0: So are functions stateless or is there a way to have them have state and maybe share information between?
2: Be a great question. <laughs> yeah, so, so this is actually a really cool, really cool thing that Functions has that um, a lot of other cloud providers don't have and something that we think is a, a real differentiator that people seem to really like. So we have this thing called Durable Functions. So Durable Functions is a, basically a way to have stateful functions. It's a, a workflow orchestrator in code. So um, if any of you are familiar with Logic Apps, that's kind of one of Azure's way of orchestrating things through this visual workflow designer, and it lets you have kind of hundreds of connections to uh, other first-party and third-party applications. But Durable Functions lets you do similar things uh, in the sense that it is an orchestrator, but it is an orchestrator that is exclusively in code. So that's really powerful because that lets you do pretty much anything you want. And I guess orchestration aspect and the persistent state is something that is really different than the rest of functions and something that is really powerful. So an example of when you would use durable functions is something like chaining functions together. I think that's a really easy one to understand is maybe you actually want to circumvent our timeout limits. In the in the serverless plan, we have limits on the amount of time a single invocation can go these limits don't exist in other plans, but uh, in the serverless plan, we don't want individual invocations going for too long because we need to allocate and deallocate. So if you want to, say, perform some compute-heavy operation, maybe you're doing some cryptography or something, uh, the easiest way to do that would be you, you have a durable function, which kind of orchestrates, uh, you've got a, an orchestrator function and then an activity function. So the orchestrator kind of delegates work to the individual activity functions they can do whatever operations they would like and then uh, pass that state on to the next function. So that's kind of how the chaining pattern works. One other way that this will actually benefit users is that we have this really interesting fan-out, fan-in pattern. You can actually do really interesting things like map-reduce with durable functions. But the the core idea here is um, it's fairly easy in serverless to uh, fan-out. It's very easy to say, I want this function to make an HTTP call to these many different places. What's much harder is fanning back in, what's collecting all of those responses back to one function. And so durable functions makes it very easy to do this because you're kind of persisting the state as you go. Uh, It actually has this really clever mechanism of building up its state as it goes along. It's built on the durable task framework, which is very, very, very cool tech. That's kind of my brief introduction to durable functions. It's It's a really nice extension to Azure Functions. And then the the one other part that I wanted to mention is that we have a really cool recent addition to durable functions. I think it's durable functions 2.0 is what we're calling it. Uh, but don't worry, it's not nearly as big as functions 2.0. It's not not that massive uh, breaking change that 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 happened between v1 and v2 for functions. But what durable 2.0 has is support for what we're calling durable entities. And this is a this is kind of a way of doing the kind of stateful actor pattern in, in functions. So this is really cool because it lets you do things like have a persistent object that lives through all time. It it, it ensures consistency. It it ensures that you can, maybe I'm not describing this the best way, but uh, the the actor pattern is such that there's only one instance online at any time. If I increment the value of that actor uh, and then I take 10 different requests at once, I won't get different requests from everywhere. It's kind of a classic distributed systems problem of many different people requesting for the same value at the same time, making different increment decrement. On this actor, so it's a singleton. It's a singleton. There you go. That's exactly the word I was missing. Yeah, no, it, it, it's a singleton. It's a stateful singleton. It, it works really well. It's it's very very new. It was actually a, we had a, a team hackathon a little while ago, and it was a, I saw a really cool demo of this. Not that it was a hackathon project. Someone just made a made a cool cool tweak on it that that we thought was was pretty interesting. But it's a really cool piece of tech. Um, durable functions is something that we we. Overall, I think is a, is a really, really cool piece that people, people seem to get very excited about.
1: I have a question outside of uh, enterprise or companies. How would someone, say like me, who's hosting their own website that shows their skills and, and kind of their resume? Sure. My understanding is that you can actually use Azure Storage for static sites like uh, <laughs> Angular, right? And then have that static site talk to Azure Functions, say, for instance, if someone wants to send me an email and I've got that functionality in a function, mm-hmm. in, make the call, process it, send it out, and then the function will spin back down. Is that reasonable? And, and, and Absolutely. I'm
2: assuming the cost would be fairly low in that case. Definitely. This is actually a pattern we're seeing more and more, um, this okay. kind of Web API workload with someone using a static website. The very easiest way to build a website is a static website. There was this big movement a while back about, you know, building static websites. It kind of ultimately didn't go that far because you really do eventually need some sort of server side logic. You right. do need some secret. You do need some, something that the user can't know about essentially. And the kind of the advent of serverless has kind of made this, this promise of static sites actually a reality because you don't have to stand up a full, full, I don't know, express backend for a node app or uh, whatever other framework, Flask for Python, whatever, whatever, whatever you want to do. Even those very simple frameworks for creating web APIs, you don't have to stand up a full application for your server side. You can just have your static application with maybe one or two calls to a function that will handle your server side logic. So uh, storage makes this easy. We have a—it's uh, the dollar web, I think—is the um, the actual place you you go find it. But the the idea is you can host your static website on Azure Storage. Uh, and then it's uh, fairly easy to then stand up a simple Azure function that will then handle API calls to that function. So you make a make a call from your from your front end um, to the endpoint that you know is your Azure function. It's again, as you were saying, very cheap because for functions, you're only paying for what you use. And for static storage, it's it's just hosting the static content. It's not there's no compute there. It's just hosting static content. It's not. Not that expensive. It's not an app service. Yeah. No, it's certainly it's certainly not app service. Right. So so yeah, this is this is definitely a way we're seeing people building applications lately. It's a pattern that we like a lot. Particularly, you know, I'm on I'm on the Azure Functions team, so we we like quite a quite a few people. We're seeing we're seeing quite a few people using functions as these slim web API backends for a static website.
1: And I think you have some tutorials on. Uh for using VS Code functions and static websites. Uh, We'll put them in the show
0: notes. Uh, But yeah, no, that's that's awesome. That's cool. So is there anything that people shouldn't do with Azure Functions?
2: Is there anything that people shouldn't do? Uh, Yes. (laughs) So I would say that I, I did point earlier to, I don't think it's a good idea to just take your existing application and then plop it in a function. We've seen people doing that and kind of trying to flex the boundaries of our system. I don't really advise doing that. If you're going to move to functions, it's better to do it with something that's new, something that's a small piece that's uh, extending an existing application or via a re-architecture where you're kind of breaking up your app into its, into its small components. Another thing I want to say is that, that that actually does kind of get into the one of the probably biggest anti-pattern we see is just uh, every function should have one purpose. It's a small thing. It's the equivalent of a method in you know, any any other programming paradigm. It should do one thing, and if your function's anywhere over, I don't know, just to put an artificial limit, say 100 lines of code, you're probably doing too much inside the function. So that's where you could use something like durable functions to maybe chain the results between each other or have many different functions that have different purposes. Other than that, I would say um, if you want the serverless scale, uh, it's it's tough to have functions that are doing really compute-heavy workloads. Uh, I would say functions is much better for IO bound workloads, things that are about, you know, processing events, what functions is actually made for doing, say, um, I don't know, to take, to take Python for an example, I would think the inference step of machine learning is much, much more applicable to functions than the training step of machine learning. So anything that's really like high performance computing or really CPU intensive is something that's probably better elsewhere.
1: Okay. Yeah, right.
2: many, many small events rather than one very big event. That makes sense.
0: Yeah. So is there anything else you want to cover before we get to picks?
2: No, I think, I think we're good. I think we got to everything.
0: Cool. You want to go first, Caleb?
2: Yeah.
1: So my pick this week is actually uh, Elder Scrolls Online. With it's the online. Uh, limited time I've had lately, I've actually gotten back into it with the um, Elsewhere update, and I'm leveling a tank. So go (laughs) MMOs.
0: Cool. My pick this week is another podcast. It's NPR's Planet Money. I like listening to it because, you know, I like economics and things like that. And they put some pretty interesting shows out there that talk about oil pipelines. They've talked about launching mini mini satellites. They talked about the chicken tax, which is something interesting about how the chickens and taxes and relates to imported pickup trucks. So, my pick is NPR's Planet Money. And what do you got for us, Colby?
2: Yeah, I think that my recommendation, uh, my pick, is a show I've been watching on Netflix recently, uh, Dark. It is uh, yeah a it is a German TV show that is dubbed, which is new for me. I don't I don't usually watch uh, dubbed shows, but it's it's really really uh, really really good. Um, I don't think I'm giving too much away to say that it's about time travel. And I find it fascinating and it's kind of a a really interesting, it, it is, I mean, the, the, the show name is not inaccurate. It, it's, it's kind of a dark, interesting mystery, kind of a uh, kind of mystery thriller, if that makes sense. Very, very interesting show. It's definitely something to check out. And if the, I, I find that at first the, uh, the, the dubbing bothered me um, the fact that it wasn't the mouths didn't match up with the the words they were saying. <laughs> right. Right. But um, I find that uh, if I'm not actually watching perfectly, if I'm like doing something else while I'm watching, it's perfect because I can just listen to it. And then I sort of see what's happening, but I, I, I don't uh, don't actually get hung up on the, the the minor details that of course will bother me. But, but yeah, so Dark, that's my recommendation. Good deal. Very cool. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. The, the, the reason I recommended it too is that season two just came out. That was the part I missed.
0: Okay. Okay. So if uh, anybody wants to reach out to you and has questions, is there a way they can do
2: that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we, kind of the entire Azure Functions team is super available on social media. So first of all, we, we have a lo- pretty big Twitter presence. We have the Azure Functions Twitter handle. My Twitter handle is just at Colby Trustness, my full name. Also, uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about Azure Functions in general, uh, we're completely open source. So uh, at least the, the functions host part, the, the part that actually runs your functions. Yeah, the, the reason I make the distinction is some of the Azure infrastructure, of course, is not open source, but the actual Azure Functions part is, and we have a, a again a lot of a lot of presence on GitHub. Uh, you can see all of our developers figure out what we're doing if you're curious, and then the 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 meta repo, the one to go to to start with, is just Azure dash Functions. It's Azure Azure dash Functions.
0: Cool. Yeah, I just want to let listeners know if they want to reach out to any of the hosts of the shows, yeah, not just this one, but any of the devchat.tv TV. Podcasts. they can go to devchat.tv and at the top, they can click on chat and that'll take them to a Discord group where they can reach out with other people that are watching or listening to the shows and any of the hosts. So thanks for coming and talking to us about Azure Functions, Colby.
1: Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It's been good. Thank you.
2: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN.